0: WLFE TV Radio. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are cold. Welcome to another edition
1: of Metal Mayhem ROC. Thursday nights, new content drops. We invite you to visit the MetalMayhemROC.com website. There, there's an archive drop-down box with past shows. Last couple weeks, we've had interviews with the Three Tremors, Resistant Bite. We've had stories on the Ozzy appearance in Rochester 40-plus years ago. So we invite you to go there. Download some past shows. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcast, please subscribe and rate and review the episodes. Everywhere else you could find us, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasting content. Subscribe to the email list on the website. It's our chance to stay in touch with you. Let's see, uh, Monday nights, I do the live radio show on thatmetalstation.com. It's a great three-hour live interactive radio show. I play music from the last 40, 50 years. There's a chat room there. Keep in touch with people listening to the show all over the world. It's a real good time. Great way to bring your Metal Monday in for a landing. Tonight's show, we're continuing our ongoing series, The History of Metal, the year 1979. I'm joined by my two metal partners, Metal Walt from the New Jersey, New York area, a veteran of over 35, 40 years of concert going. He's just a well of knowledge. And we have Ian O'Rourke, our metal musician from the band Motorlord. These two guys are a great addition to the Metal Mayhem ROC team. Tonight, 1979, a lot of good things going on in 79. The old guards are on their way out. Zeppelin, Aerosmith, Kiss, running into alcohol, drug problems, just falling off the radar. And as the 70s come to a close, some of those 70 bands, Scorpions, Judas Priest, they're ready to gain global domination. And the Young Guns, ACDC, Van Halen, Motorhead, they're, they're up there taking their uh, spot as the front runners of metal. So the year 1979, it's a real good time. So uh, let's get things going. Let's welcome back to Metal Mayhem ROC from New Jersey,
2: Metal Walt. Hey, Walt, what's going on, man? How you been? I'm great, Verno. Hi, Ian. Doing well. Looking forward to 79.
1: So what do you got this year? So
2: 1979 summed up is uh, what I would title a transition year, right? It's uh, the start of the old guard handing over to, let's say, the new guard. Um, I think you're starting to see less and less of the worlds of Zeppelin, Purple, Sabbath, even Kiss for that matter, they're declining. And you're seeing uh, an emergence of the new bands. I think and those come in different genres of hard rock and metal. I think you're starting to see the emergence of the the new wave of British heavy metal coming in, such as, you know, releases in 79, demos on Def Leppard and Iron Maiden. You have Saxon coming on with their debut release. And then maybe not categorized in that that field, but just the straight-ahead metal bands that are going to come and become very popular in the 80s, bands such as Accept and Riot, for that matter. I also think that you see the American hard rock radio-friendly bands really emerging into the forefront of things. You know, you have Van Halen, Cheap Trick, Sticks, 38 Special, Sammy Hagar, Molly Hatchet, Farner, even putting in the Scorpions there, right? These are all bands that are now up on the top of that, top of that list here. And thinking ahead... A couple of years from now where, let's say, the introduction of, let's say, the video world with MTV looms very large in this. And a lot of these bands are going to be really even stepping up their popularity even more so because of of that uh, form that they're in. 79, I think you also see a continuation on that trend of great live albums, which we'll touch upon. And I think another really important thing is uh, you're starting to see very large bands starting to replace prominent band members. And these are just not little pieces coming in and out. These are singers, guitar players, founding members. Ronnie James Dio, Joe Perry, uh, just to name a few in this year, and wait till 1980 comes to see even more changes to come. So I think also in, let's say, the newly formed bands, whether these are bands that are about to make releases in 1980 or bands that are forming around and maybe they don't come out for releases for another two, three years, But those lists are growing and it's really expanding into America. And I think once we touch upon just naming some of those artists, it really is that, you know, playing field is just extremely large. So when you go back in time and you take a look at 1979, um, a snapshot of that, let's say from where we were four or five years ago in 75, 76, it's really a different landscape. So I think that's what 79 brings in. So um, the first band I'm going to touch upon is Judas Priest. And Judas Priest in 79 actually released two albums. One was actually Hellbent for Leather, was released in the United States, which really was the Killing Machine album um, that was released in the UK and Europe in 78. It didn't get released in the United States because uh, the the record label, Columbia CBS, didn't like as quote unquote the murderous implications of the title, so they basically made them change the title in the imagery and calling it Hellbent for Leather. So no, no surprise there. But the biggie really was again the Unleashed in the East live album. These are this is a show recorded over a couple nights in Tokyo. You know, again, no secret here. We see this over the years with a lot of things. There's a lot of word, and even Rob Halford confirms this that the vocals from the original record, recording were apparently they were, they, they didn't come out right or they were damaged. So they had to recreate the vocals in a live setting in the studio. So in a way they were doctored, but nonetheless, it's a great album. I think you have nine tracks that cover, you know, the, uh, the two sides of the album and they're just your best of tracks, the tracks that every Priest fan is going to kill for, especially from that era It just shows you here that live albums were a trend here because this one actually hit top 10 in the UK. Years later, it was released uh, as a Japanese EP with even additional bonus, bonus tracks to add to it, which even painted the landscape of that album to be even bigger and better. I think, you know, again, the imagery on this also is great. On live albums, you see the band on the stage, but you see Rob Halford coming out in the forefront, and there he is front and center with his leather hat and his whip and his leather pants and you know, you know, what's to come in the future years. So I think, uh, you know, a standout album and one for every priest to be proud of. So, uh, Ian, I think you're going to touch on uh, UFO.
3: Yeah. I mean, we've gone in great detail to talk about how much affinity we have for the live albums that came out during this period. Uh, strangers in a night, if I had to give a nod to an album that I was going to suggest for someone that maybe had never delved much into UFO, this would be the one that I would go to. I mean, all the, the killer songs, Dr. Doctor and Mother Mary and stuff, A uh, Rock Bottom, it's a 15-minute juggernaut of a jam. You still got big songs like Let It Roll and Shoot Shoot. I mean, it is just one of the better live albums to be released and something that anybody that is a fan of live albums should definitely have in their collection.
2: Ian can't agree more with that UFO Strangers in the Night. It's a classic. I mean, another classic that comes to mind is the Queen Live Killers album. It's a double live album, actually, that came out uh, in this year. It was recorded on the jazz tour throughout Europe. Again, just like the Judas Priest album, it peaked at number three in the UK and even did very well in the States, number 16. Um, had double platinum sales, which is which is really amazing if you think about the times. And I think without reading off the tracks on the album, I mean, it's a, it's four sides, but you know, it it's not so much the tracks that they pick, but it's the, the way they set up the live show from the introduction and to the, the changes in the songs from rockers to, let's say, the quirky stuff to the ballady stuff to the acoustic stuff. And they kind of go through that all the way. And I think like a lot of other live albums at the time, you see the songs open up and change, and they, you know, they take on a life of their own as a live album. You know. And you think of, let's say, the, the starting track in the, in the show is the We Will Rock You. They start with that, but it's the fast version, right? And that's not something that really comes to mind when you think about it. It's the ebbs and flows and the build-up towards the songs. Um, and then, of course, you know as every Queen fan and every show go forward, it was always the big crescendo at the end with Bohemian Rhapsody and We Will Rock You with Tie Your Mother Down in there. So, you know, definitely something that is just another one. It's uh it should just be right in there on top live albums for all hard rock.
1: back on that Judas Priest that Unleashed in the East when they reissued it. There was four tracks added to it that were done on that tour. Rock Forever, Delivering the Goods, Hellbent for Leather, and Starbreaker. That's on the reissue. It's on the Spotify version. So three great albums, the 70s, was the decade of the live albums. One band that reaped the benefits of a live album was ACDC with the If You Want Blood, You Got It back in 78. Well, when 79 came around, they had their album Highway to Hell. Now, unfortunately, last album with Pond Scott, but this album was just filled with um, you know, the title track, Highway to Hell, Girls Got Rhythm, Night Prowler. This is ACDC at their pinnacle, I think, in the Bon Scott era. Originally, Atlantic Records, 86th, the producing crew of uh, George Young and Harry Vanda brought in Eddie Kramer, who had success with Jimi Hendrix and some other acts, didn't gel with the band. They brought in a young hotshot producer by the name of John Mutt Lang, who, (laughs) if you know anything about rock and roll, this guy's probably produced albums that have sold close to 200 million copies. He helped Bon Scott achieve some vocal performances that Bon even said that he couldn't even think he had it in him. Possibly one of the most infamous songs on the release is a song called Night Prowler. It was connected with Richard Ramirez. In 1985, Ramirez was a highly publicized murderer. He was nicknamed the Night Stalker. Ramirez was a fan of ACDC, Police also claim that Ramirez left an ACDC hat at one of the crime scenes. Just a bad dude, but he was really into the ACDC song. Again, Bon Scott died. Uh, 1980, February of 1980, out drinking. You, you stop and wonder where they would have gone. And as we get into 1980, we're going to find out where they did go. But Walt... Any input on the ACDC? I know you're a fan. What do you think of that Highway to Hell album?
2: Adding to your story here, I think it's um, important to call out the imagery. Again, I've been trying to focus not so much also on the music, but let's say the importance of the album and what the cover looked like and what the inserts looked like, right? I mean, this is another great one, right? Because it's Angus coming out with the devil horns, right? And how many times has that been put on merchandising and just been on posters and T-shirts and you know the album title and the imagery here really became you know one of those pieces that is uh, known for AC/DC. Um, I think you know in addition to the songs, I think what was really let's say important in the growth of the band here, and at the same time a shame, was that this was their one opportunity where they were really ready to break through commercially and really ready to become that global band. Um, that maybe wasn't you know existing a year or two before that. So we all know what comes next, and I think that was even probably not expected. The band itself that they would have expected that by replacing a singer, um, it would have really pushed them into stardom. So, uh, but again, you look back at that album, and it's just nothing but great memories on it.
1: Again, those uh, live albums leading the way for commercially acclaimed releases. The Scorpions. In 78, they had Tokyo Tapes. In 79, they had Love Drive, sixth studio album by the band, considered by some critics to be the pinnacle of their career. Don't know about that, but Love Drive was a major evolution of the band's sound. Love Drive was the band's first album to be released by Harvest Records in Europe and Mercury Records in the States. Also saw the return of Michael Shanker, Younger brother rhythm guitarist Rudolf Schenker, he had just split from UFO after the Obsession album. Now, Schenker contributed lead guitars on some uh, killer songs on this album, Another Piece of Meat, the instrumental Coast to Coast, the ballad Holiday, and Loving You Sunday Morning. At the beginning of the tour, though, in uh, February 79, Schenker rejoined the band as the part of the touring act, and the group reluctantly parted ways with Matthias Jabs, who had taken over for Ulrich Roth the previous year. Well, as fate would have it, (laughs) uh, Michael Schenker quit, which led to Jabs' immediate return after an intense round of negotiations. Now, this whole twisted Scorpions, MSG, Michael Schenker tree spawned the band MSG, Michael Schenker Group. Ian, now you're a big Schenker fan, and you have some knowledge of the situation. you getting information on this MSG? Yeah, the the
3: biggest thing with it is that Michael, probably because he's another one that fell to his demons way too many times, um, had a lot of... uh, personal issues, I think, you know, that, that pushed him back, you know, and coming into the thing with the Scorpions, he really kind of wanted to be more of the lead dog. Um, I think that's one of the things that led to him going aside from his, you know, just getting into these crazy drunken hazes, but then he ends up putting together the Michael Schenker group or MSG. And we're not going to hear anything from them until next year, but when that album comes out, boy, he comes back with a vengeance and he's ready to just tear us into everybody. So it's, it's really some cool stuff. It's too bad that even to this day, he has unresolved issues with his uh, brother over uh, some of the things that have occurred. Yeah. The, the, the biggest thing with it is that Michael uh, probably because he's another one that fell to his demons way too many times, um, had a lot of, uh, personal issues I think you know that, that that pushed him back you know and coming into the thing with the Scorpions he really kind of wanted to be more of the lead dog um, I think that's one of the things that led to him going aside from his you know just getting into these crazy drunken hazes but then he ends up putting together the Michael Schenker group or MSG and we're not going to hear anything from them until next year but when that album comes out boy he comes back with a vengeance, and he's ready to just tear us and everybody. So it's it's really some cool stuff. It's too bad that even to this day he has unresolved issues with his uh, brother over uh, some
1: of the things that have occurred. Unresolved issues? <laughs> there are a couple old middies fighting. Uh, Granted, you know, they, they are bitter. I can't imagine you know, what the holidays are like in the Schenker household. You know, you, I know, you know, Michael Schenker, uh, accusing Rudolph of what was he saying? Stealing riffs or just, just stealing riffs. And apparently his money when Rudolph or when
3: Michael was going through the nineties, he was in such a drunken haze all the time that Rudolph actually had stepped up to help manage his money. So he didn't go broke and, uh, Rudolph, claims, or Michael, excuse me, claims that Rudolph stole his money. And I, I honest to God, don't think that, the, I hope it's not true. I think that a lot of it is mismanagement on behalf of of Michael Schenker and some of his uh, issues with alcohol and his demons that have stayed with him. But
1: who knows? It's always trouble when you start getting sober and start realizing the difficulty you put you and your family through during your tough times. But Michael Schenker regrouped, and he's been contributing positive material ever since. Now, we're going to go into a little segment right here that uh, it's very unfortunate because two of the powerhouses of 70s rock and roll had a terrible demise. Led Zeppelin, 1979, their last album as a band, In Through the Outdoor. The band wasn't at a good place. It was 79. The reason behind that, John Bonham was battling his alcoholism, and guitarist Jimmy Page, who often failed to show up on time, was dealing with a heroin addiction. The band started rehearsing material for this album in 78. After six weeks, they traveled to Stockholm to begin recording. In contrast to previous Zeppelin albums, In Through the Outdoor features much greater influences on the part of bassist and keyboardist John Paul Jones and vocalist Robert Plant. The music on In Through the Outdoor is dominated by Jones so much that two of the songs from the album, *Southbound Suarez and All of My Love, were the only two original Zeppelin songs that Jimmy Page had no part in writing. And the ironic part there is All of My Love It's one of the most um, eccentric, different-sounding Zeppelin songs there is out there, and it stands on its own. I think it's one of their greatest songs. But that being said, the album went to number one when it was released, reportedly selling close to 2 million copies within days of the release. This is Zeppelin's last album with uh, John Bonham. He died in, unfortunately, another drunken escapade. It's late September 1980, right when they were doing rehearsals for the Into the Outdoor American Tour. Any input on Zeppelin?
2: I think it's uh, one of those albums that the way you describe it, um, you know, I think it they, they they hid that. I think you have some, you know, some material out there that is still good and in the public eye yeah. back in, in 79. I'm sure nobody really knew what was going on behind the scenes, but you had, you know, good songs, Pool in the Rain, Hot Dog, and All of My Love, right? I mean, these are still memorable songs in the whole catalog, right? So, yeah, I think... Uh, maybe not as bad as it seemed, but when you really know the, the background on the story, you know, that's where, where you see it was all unraveling.
1: Ian, uh, you're a Zeppelin fan. Any take on this release? I am. The one
3: thing I will say is, uh, Fool in the Rain, just listening to that final performance by John Bonham and just the way that he played with that song is just monstrous in itself he's one of those people like we've discussed with others that he's still revered today because he's an irreplaceable part. And that's why the band continued or did not continue as Led Zeppelin without him.
1: Agree. You know, and that's weird because they never went through the 80s. They I, When was Zeppelin 1? Is that 69? Yeah, a 10 year career. It's, you know, it and really those last couple years, they really weren't putting much out. Well, when was uh Presence? Is that 77, 76? But, but the, the point I'm trying to make is they had that inactivity, really, the last two or three three years of their career and it's sort of sad because you watch some of the that footage that nebworth and you know jimmy page was a mess and the band was just truly sort of like like that early sabbath it was just as great as they were they fell so far down another band that that happened to was aerosmith Aerosmith, obviously, comes around in the early 70s. They had the run of fantastic albums. We've chronicled it. But by 79, the band was a mess. Night in the Rots, their sixth studio album... Released in 79, but took well over like a year to make. They're in the studio. They're wasting money left and right. Joe Perry's drinking. Steven Tyler's snorting Peru. Um, It's just the families are fighting together. Band members were in dire financial straits. Put it this way. uh, Joe Perry owed the company $80,000 for room service alone. Who the hell brings up an $80,000 room service bill? Uh, The band uh, was forced to go on tour, and that wasn't good. Substance abuse among the members gradually worsened. They started fighting among themselves. This often led to missed and sloppy live performances. And like Walt said in the beginning, this led to the departure of Joe Perry, the situation came to a head in July 79 at the World Series of Rock in Cleveland. Perry left the band halfway through the tour after a heated argument with Tyler. Prior to Perry's departure, he had completed parts for uh, six or seven songs off of the what would end up being Night in the Ruts. Guitar parts for the remaining songs were recorded by Brad Whitford, and Jimmy Crespo, who eventually took over Perry's uh, role in the band from 79 to 84. Well, Steven Tyler ended up getting clean. Joe Perry ended up going out on his own and playing clubs and driving around in a van. It's it's just a terrible story because Aerosmith, like Zeppelin, they were just, they were monsters. They were just, you know, you, you couldn't touch them but drugs and alcohol just destroyed these bands. Well, what do you think of Aerosmith? Because you've been around the block with these guys. Any remembrance of 79 in your interpretation of Night in the Ruts?
2: To be honest, no. I I know Aerosmith from the heyday of the 70s, and then it's almost like there's this period of time from 79 to around 87 where it's almost like they never existed, and I know they did. Right. But I think it's just like a very dark cloud period where they stayed alive. But there there's no real memory in a good way of the band there. You know, and I think they were the one of the lucky bands that came out of this and really got a, a second chance on life and had a second career. Right. You know, you think about permanent vacation in 87 forward. You know, they, 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 were, they were like a cat with a second life. And that's a great thing. Led Zeppelin didn't have that chance. Right. And um, I think that's something to be proud of in, in a way. I think um, you you think about some of these other bands that uh, maybe were in a demise or even, let's say, uh, a slump, but maybe kept it going. I think of even Kiss, right? In 79, Kiss put out Dynasty. Now, certainly, this wasn't the death of the band, but it was a band that was was a head-scratcher. I mean, the guys were basically following the formula of the four solo releases and I think they, they, they goofed on their, on their model of what they thought success was, right? Instead of sticking with it and what brought them there from, let's say, 74, 75 through 78, they went in a whole different direction. I mean, they put together a pop album to try to get on pop radio. They tried to camp and, and jump on the disco bandwagon, you know, to a degree. And this is where maybe Gene and Paul became very uh, stingy and very greedy and wanted to manage the band. Now, granted, Peter and Ace had the alcohol and the drug problems themselves, but they were no longer a group. I mean, this album was written, essentially, they all you know, wrote in their tracks, brought their demos to the table. None of it was done as a group. Um, I mean, and despite that, you think about the album, it's, uh, it's a flop, right? But it had its moments. I think, again, as we talked about with the solo albums, Ace comes out of there looking like the uh, the hero. I mean, yeah, he does a, a cover of The Stones' 2000 Man, but it's a great version. Hard Times is a cool little rock track on there, and I think he looks like the better, better of the group. You know, I think there's still, you know, there's some okay tracks on there, catchy songs, charisma, maybe Shore knows something, and, you know, Paul has an okay song in Magic Touch, but definitely there's nothing that you look back at Kiss and say, hey, this is a Kiss album. And you think about what's to come the next year on a mess that's even worse, right? I mean, even to think about it, behind the scenes you find out many years later that Peter was in a car accident in seventy eight and was hurt and banged up and I guess they didn't like his performance on the album and they brought Anton Fink to play. And so that became the beginning of you only seeing the names of the artists on the album, but not knowing who actually played the song. Bob Kulick was another one that played in there for Ace many years to come and uh really was that the start of that low and mysterious point of kiss until again they came back, let's say in Eighty-two or eighty-three with a new image, without the makeup, and then they start building themselves off in a whole another career in the non-makeup era, and they came back and, and became an eighties, you know, an eighties uh, iconic band again. Another band that got a second life, right? So I think you can make those parallels to Kiss and Aerosmith.
1: Now, while you mentioned that uh, Dynasty and Unmasked had studio players and uncredited musicians, but that was going on as far back as possibly. Destroyer and rock and roll over, different guys doing it. Bob Kulick, he was all over the place. That last that fourth side of Kiss Alive Two with those uh All American Man and uh, Larger Than Life. That was sprinkled with other musicians. Do you think there was a lot more going on than before
2: Dynasty? Perhaps some of it, but I think it uh, it slowly grew in the distrust of Gene and Paul with Ace and Peter. It was like, you know, two of the members going one direction, two going the other. You could just see it was taking control of the band, and they wanted it their way. They wanted to, you know, protect the imagery of the band, and now when they were at this high with their merchandising, with the, you know, all yeah. the kid stuff, and the movies, and Kiss Me, Phantom of the Park, and the comic books, and everything else, right? They were going to protect the, uh, the trademark, they weren't worried about the members, and if it meant you know, bringing better guys in to play the songs, and the fans weren't really going to know what was going on because the four guys in makeup were on the cover. Who cares? I mean, thinking about, uh, you know, other bands with, uh, let's say, temperamental members, uh, you know, taking control of the band. I see You see that continue again in, in Rainbow, right? We touch upon, let's say, the Deep Purple Family Tree, and I think, uh, you know, we'll just keep calling it that because it is what it is, right? But, I mean, you had, again... White Snake was starting to build up their momentum there, and they put out their next release, uh, you know, Walking in the Shadow of the Blues. You know, it was a great song on the album. They had the killer album cover with the snake and the girl with with the nude rear end. You had Gillen coming out with another solo album, Mr. Universe. But, you know, getting to the point was with Rainbow, right? Here's another guy, Richie Blackmore, that can't make up his mind what he likes, what he dislikes. He doesn't mind changing members every year. And here it goes again, you know? Uh, Ronnie James Dio, who is, in my opinion, the best singer that they ever had, who is a guy that can stand on his own and actually has an opinion on things and can stand for himself, he actually quit. He didn't wait for Blackmore to fire him. He left on his own. Um, but what it did was it uh, it turned Blackmore into, yet again, spinning the lineups around. I mean, rumor has it he actually asked Ian Gillen to rejoin the band, and Gillen said no, um, but he did bring Roger Glover in. And then he brought Don in to play keyboard. So, again, another formidable lineup. And I think the one, you know, that everybody knows in 79, they released a Down to Earth album. It's the one and only album featuring Graham Bonnet uh, on it. But it was also a trend out of that, let's say, classic hard rock metal and into what Blackmore envisioned would be more of a commercial sounding melodic band. And he definitely did it, and he did it well. Let's, let's, let's be honest here. As the time went on and he brought Joel and Turner in, they became really, really popular and they and really good radio-friendly songs. You know, the interesting part about Graham Bonnet was he was not a rocker, or even a metal musician. He had, like, more of an R&B style of singing, and, and certainly his look, he had kind of the, the slick back hair from, you know, say, uh, looking like a greaser or somebody out of the 50s, and he wore those, let's say, pilot sunglasses. Um, but he had a great voice and, um, I think the songs, they're memorable songs, songs that you can still hear today and go, man, that's a killer song, you know, all night long. And, uh, since you've been gone. And then there's like the rockers that kind of lump them in all together. They're all pretty good songs. There's really not much difference in any of them. Songs like lost in Hollywood and eyes of the world and even danger zone, you know, good rockers, nothing, nothing standouts, but, uh, You know, definitely a good, solid album. But even this one, this was another short-lived one. Um, And I don't recall exactly what happened. I think there was some infighting within Blackmore and Bonnet. And I think Bonnet was on all kinds of substances. And I remember there was a a certain show maybe in the U.K. at a festival. And that was kind of the demise of the band. And he was out before you know it. So it it was going on all over the place. So on the Motorhead front, uh, Motorhead uh, was one of the bands at this time in 79 that released uh, two albums. The first uh, was the album Overkill. I think this was an album that unexpectedly did a lot better than perhaps even the band expected because it was only their second re, uh, second album. Um, I think to most listeners, it's a much better album than the debut. And I think it might be right up there with, uh, as the landmark album and definitely one that's looked upon as one of the best uh, in, their, in their catalog throughout their career. I think of the title track, right? I mean, who doesn't love the title track? I mean, you got the 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 drums and the bass and the tension builds up and then, you know, as you get to the end of the song, you think the song's over and there comes that <speaking> and it goes on and on and on. It does it another time and another time and another time and another time. And then at the end of it, here's a song coming in at seven, eight minutes. But You know, and then even some of the other songs, like, you know, we peg Motorhead and it is a sort of, you know, uh, garage thrash punk, you know, whiskey band. But in reality, think of a song like Stay Clean. It's got a great riff, right? And it's just one of those ones. You know, stuff that's memorable. These are hooky hook you know very hooky type uh riffs and it brings motorhead into a different sound uh you know song like metropolis think of metropolis right another one there how it's got a great opening riff the lyric is great and it's that crescendo in the beginning and it just drops off and it kicks into the high gear song so i think it's definitely a highlight for me uh from their catalog and just totally a, a you know a great album um later in the year they released Bomber, which I think was you yeah, know was solid. It it got everything you wanted to get. I mean the songs are very characteristic of that classic Motorhead sound. Nothing unique, but certainly nothing bad. I mean it, the title track, songs like Stone Dead Forever and Dead Man Tell No Tales, all really good stuff. So I think this was another big year for Motorhead, growing that ladder, putting themselves on the map, and uh really came out with a formidable year.
1: Well, you know, uh it's sort of like um when the 70s ended and these guys went into the 80s, you know, they had to beef up the sound. They had to commercialize it, trim it a little bit, make it a little more accessible. And, you know, people just partied. Everyone had their habits and brought their addictions, and it just ruined a lot of great bands. Speaking of great bands, uh, Ian, what's going on in the Thin Lizzy camp? Well, it's funny
3: you should say, you know, when you're talking about substance abuse problems, because it's no, you know, secret that Phil Lennett um, and Scott Gorham uh, at that particular time were both deeply entrenched in uh, heroin addiction themselves. Uh, But Black Rose came out in 79. Gary Moore rejoined the band. His old friend Phil Lennett uh, reached out to him. He had done some uh, touring obligations after – Brian Robertson had left previously, so they record the album, and it's you know it's got some great songs on there. The probably the biggest two songs on there would be "Waiting for an Alibi," which is probably the most memorable single um, as far as a rocker from the album, and then the song "Black Rose," which if you've ever heard the song "Emerald" from the Jailbreak album, and then later on through Live and Dangerous very Celtic themed, very, you know, bombastic, majestic, big, bold, powerful song. Black Rose is the same way, if not times five. So it takes it to a whole other level, but this is another band, you know, um, going into the eighties, having some hiccups along the way because of the substance abuse issues and uh, what trend they're going to actually follow. You know, Phil was very much involved with Uh, He was friends with, you know, all the guys in the Sex Pistols and a bunch of punk bands. He was really keen on a lot of the new wave bands. So as you go forward, you listen to some of their albums and it's like there's a hodgepodge of everything again. You know, there's no consistency. So that's that's really funny that, you know, all these parallels can be can be drawn along all these bands. And the, the one consistent that comes back is either alcohol or drugs.
1: Yeah, you're right. Those parallels are pretty obvious. It's, it's too bad that substance abuse rips our bands apart. So in 79, a lot of the mid-level American acts were in the game, you know, like Sammy Hagar, Riot, Cheap Trick. And up in Canada, they had their own little uh, scene brewing, bands like April Wine, Triumph, and Helix. Ian, you're familiar with these acts. What was going on with these groups in '79? So,
3: Verno, the uh, Cheap Trick, obviously, you know, they're at this point one of those bands that everybody's talking about. They're, you know, you could probably classify them in some of those poster bands like Walt would talk about. Um, They released the Dream Police album. On the other side of things, you've got uh, Sammy Hagar. You know, when he came out of Montrose, they were trying to make him a little bit more singer-songwriter-ish, I guess, a little bit more ballad-y, a little bit more soulful. Still had the occasional rockers that he was throwing in there, but he was working with a lot of songwriters. But by the time he gets to this point in 79, he releases the album Street Machine. He is, at this point, getting himself established, and you're seeing him with some of these bigger acts. You know, he ends up going out and touring with Kiss a couple times, well, once, and then was never invited back again. Um, And then you also have that nice little band from New York called Riot. They have released their second album now called Narita, and they are really honing in on that metal sound, a smoker from beginning to end. And as you mentioned, the other band that was kind of doing that same ascendancy, even though they had had a couple albums underneath their belt at this point, the previous album uh, by April Wine got them a little bit more Radio Play, a little bit more familiarity with people out there. They had the song Roller, which is just a freaking smoking, heavy boogie song. But they come back this time with Harder Faster. It's one of those albums you can see where they're at this point, like we had said before, you get that two, three, four albums in a row where they're really establishing themselves coming up through the ranks. And on the other side, you know, with the Canadians up there, you know, you've got Triumph releasing Just a Game, keeping themselves into the conversation with some of the hard rock that they're putting out. And then a little band called Helix released their debut breaking loose. So, I mean, there's a lot of good material that's coming out uh, all over North America at this particular point.
1: Uh, what was the problem with Sammy Hagar playing opening for kiss once? What was I, I think I read something recently about that, but uh, what's the backstory on that? Yeah,
3: so apparently, uh, you know, how KISS fans are like uh, Maiden fans or like Metallica fans, you know, they're very devoted and rabid towards the band. And Sammy was out there trying to do his thing, and people were yelling for KISS, and he got into a little bit of a uh, cursive uh, altercation with some of the crowd, and Gene Simmons didn't take kindly to it and asked him to leave, and he was not invited back again.
1: Well, you know what? They both went on to have successful careers, and I'm sure they're not exchanging Christmas cards or uh, Hanukkah cards or <laughs> whatever it is they exchange.
3: Who knows at this point in the game?
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> now, back in the States at this time, the arena bands were sort of still going full force. Bands like Ted Nugent releasing State of Shock. Not much really on this album, Um. You know, it's Nugent. It's post-Cat Scratch Fever. This was really when Nuge was starting to lose a little of his commercial luster. And he gained it again in the next couple of years with a, a couple albums that he did after that. Sticks releasing Cornerstone. Let's see. Uh, journey Evolution. You know, this is a pre-Steve Perry Journey. So, you know, these albums, they're existing, not really going too far. Both those bands, Sticks and Journey, when 80 and 81 came around, had monster albums. We'll touch on that in the next couple episodes. Let's see Bad Company, Desolation Angels. I'm not really too familiar with Bad Company. Either of you guys know anything about this Desolation Angels release? I will say that this is the
3: last classic lineup album by Bad Company, because it has been documented that, or at least by Paul Rogers in one of the docs that they had on the band, when John Bonham died, Peter Grant became so despondent about anything and everything that was going on with the musical world that he pretty much ignored what was going on with running or helping to run Swan Song Records and they kind of were some of the victim of that whole thing when it came to the management side and everything that occurred. I mean, it's is it the worst album in the world? No, but it does not pack any of the punch that their earlier albums did for sure.
1: Let's see. Uh, what's going on with the Metal Front Saxons debut album came out as well as the Accept uh, debut now, neither of these albums really contain anything that you'll remember. Sure, it's their first ones, but their best material came later on. Uh, Molly Hatchett, Flirting With Disaster. Now, Molly Hatchett was one of those bands. That they, they, they one, two, three punch of the debut, Flirting With Disaster, and the third one, Beating the Odds, even though they had a second singer, it was still fantastic stuff. Now, Ian, you're real familiar with Blackfoot. You know, these guys, they had some roots. They're from down south, and they're like, they were kick a kick-ass band. Uh, well, what kind of a three-play did they have? So, 79 saw the album Strikes Come Out, which is
3: most known for the song Train Train. It's just a stomper of an album. This is the album that they toured Europe with and, and the UK in support of Judas Priest when Priest was at their peak with the uh, you know, the Killing Machine, uh, Hellbent for Leather tour. Um, the next album after this uh, is Tom Catton, and then Marauder after that. That's a three-album run by these guys that are. that is considered that, that trinity of great albums, just like you had mentioned there with Molly Hatchett. You know, you got the, the self-titled The Flintwood Disaster and Beating the Odds. This is some really great stuff because it's, it's a deviation from the Skynyrd side which was a little bit more bluesy-based Southern rock, these guys are really bringing that heavier edge, a lot more guitar, a lot more attitude to the music. So it's really cool stuff that's coming out at that point.
1: Totally agree. I had a chance to see that 81 Marauder tour and a Young Def Leppard open. It was Leppard on their High and Dry tour. So, um, And it was funny because I remember they had the tour shirts, uh, Blackfoot, Marauder, 81 through 84 World Tour. And at the time, I'm like, 1984, man, that's so far away. But, you know, as you get older, you see uh, uh, time just zips by, and they had it planned out. So, all right, well, you know what? We're going to take a little break right now, and when we come back, we're going to revisit Van Halen, Van Halen 2.0. The Monsters, the Pasadena Kings, came around with their second album. And Walt and Ian are going to give us an update on the fans honing their skills in the basements and garages around the world. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC, the history of metal, 1979.
0: Attention metalheads. Since we launched in 2019, Metal Mayhem ROC has been the go-to source for metalheads to talk about and hear the music they love. We can't thank you enough for being part of the family. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe so you know when we go live. Plus, tell folks why you like to listen when you leave a rating and review. If you're listening on another platform, head over to Podchaser.com and type in Metal Mayhem ROC in the search bar. Hit subscribe, then rate the show and leave a comment on why you get. Your metal fix from the Vernomatic and his guests, Metal Mayhem ROC. Now, back to the show.
1: Just want to remind you folks on Monday nights, I host Metal Mayhem ROC Live. It's a three hour, totally interactive heavy metal show. I play the best of metal from the last 40, 50 years. There's a chat room. You could go in there, interact with other bangers around the country and world sometimes. It's uh, located on thatmetalstation.com. You could go to our website, metalmayhemroc.com and get details. So the guys are going to share right now what's going on in garages and basements around the world. Well, I want to thank you for joining us tonight, but your parting shot uh Who's uh, developing their
2: sound? Lots and lots of newly formed bands in 79. I mean, we can't touch on all of them, but uh, there's some good ones here. Uh, and, and, and just quick quick points on these bands. Dockin. Dockin uh, released a two-song EP in 79. They toured all over Germany. Um, there was a band assembled, and this is where Don Dockin met fame producer Michael Wagner, um, who eventually they formed a relationship and Don Dockin moved to L.A. and they got involved in that whole L.A. Hollywood scene which prompted them forward to uh, what would become of them in a few years. Um, Europe. Um, the, the, the band out of Sweden, uh, John Tempesta, John Norum, uh, they started their band in 1979 and that band name was Force. Right? So that was the origins of Europe. Um, Night Ranger, uh, Jack Blades, Brad Gillis, and Kelly Keegan. I mean, you think about, these are three guys that have been with this band for their whole career, um, and they actually started this band in 1979. The band's name was Stereo, and they came out of the ashes of a band called Rubicon, who was a performer um, that had a pop funk sound and was a member of sly and the family stone so making a long story short jack Blades was involved with this particular artist he took his guys with him and they formed stereo which became night ranger and then you have sabotage one of my all-time favorites uh the oliva brothers john and chris um out of tampa florida and again they get their origins in their first true hard rock band called Avatar in '79, which would prompt them forward and eventually become Sabotage. So, Ian, I think you have a couple to add.
3: Yeah, it's it's really kind of funny the uh, the mechanism of what's going on because you have these bands like you had mentioned. You know that you got the, the you run the gummit of you know European hard rock and you know American hard rock and then some of the metal bands and different things that are go- going on. The band Trouble out of Chicago um, gets their start right around the same time that you have in California, the band St. Vitus. And if you had to throw in a trilogy for this year, you also have in England, you have Witchfinder General. Now, anybody that is a fan of doom metal knows that these guys, along with a band that got their start back in 76 and is sludging it up through the uh, clubs, the obsessed. These, this is probably the Mount Rushmore of, of early doom metal. At least that second wave, you know, post Black Sabbath, that really doesn't start to rear its head until the early '80s. But by the time it does, and it starts to springboard, it leads to a whole plethora of bands, and you can see that the, the doom metal um, front kind of running a parallel with the new wave of British heavy metal as we go along through the eighties. So really some, uh, some cool stuff to look forward to. Definitely.
1: Well, you know, you guys, um, I want to thank you for putting the homework in and, uh, coming up with these new bands that are right around the corner. All right. Right now I wanted to save the granddaddy of them all for the end Van Halen, Van Halen 2 came out in 1979. You know, these stories have been shared time and time again, but they're always worth telling again. Van Halen toured the world, 1978. Started in February, they opened for Journey, that famous Black Sabbath opening spot. They went around the world, they came back to the States, they toured through the fall, they ended at the beginning of December, they took a week off for the holidays and bam, back in the studio to do Van Halen 2. Many of the songs on VH2 are known to have existed prior to the release of the first album. They're scattered throughout the Zero demos, all the stuff you hear on those bootleg tapes when they're playing, you know, Gazaris in the Starwood. They used to have uh, different titles. They rearranged them. You know, Beautiful Girls was uh, Bring on the Girls And just, you know, different titles Here's a fun fact That black and yellow guitar on the back of the album Known as the Bumblebee, That's buried with Pantera guitarist Dimebag Daryl Eddie Van Halen placed it in the Kiss Casket at Dime's funeral Now, it wasn't the guitar that Eddie recorded the album with But it is the guitar that's on the back album uh, photo shoot And Eddie played it on the tour David Lee Roth on the back of the album has uh, a broken toe. Turned out to be a broken heel and he has the cane. That was during the uh, photo shoot when he's jumping off the riser for the back album. Perfect, perfect follow up to Van Halen one. They only have one cover on here. The uh, Clint Baylor Jr. Cover of you're no good. Linda Ronstadt uh, had success with it about two years before a uh, song they wrote in the studio, Dance the Night Away. It's a, uh, <laughs> in fine Dave fashion, it's, um, Dave's telling the story about like uh, one of his first uh, sexual escapades with a, uh, I think it was a housekeeper or uh, someone that he had relations with when he was younger, bottoms up, somebody get me a doctor. Eddie does the instrumental Spanish fly on, a, you know, like a acoustic guitar, but he, you know, originally learned it on a flamingo, on a whim. One night he was at Ted Templeman's house after Ted had come back from vacation. He went over there and it was just leaning against the wall. He picked it up and started, you know, noodling Spanish fly. Ted's draw, jaw dropped to the floor. Bam, it's on the album. Beautiful Girls, Women in Love. I could go on and on. This album is uh, a soundtrack to my youth, one of my favorite Van Halen albums, they're all my favorite, but Van Halen 2 just um, really struck a chord with me. Eddie Van Halen on this album was just on fire, but you have to grasp the reality here, folks, that Eddie Van Halen, when he came on the scene, every album, like that original six-pack, but really those first albums, everything was just groundbreaking, and it was just coming out... You know, every year, back then, albums were coming out yearly. They recorded this album in just one week. Come on, one week? Van Halen too. I give it a 10 out of 10. Ian, you're a huge Van Halen fan. What's your take on this album, man? One of the
3: best quotes that I ever heard was Zach Wilde talking about Eddie Van Halen and talking about the song Spanish fly. And I don't quote me on exactly what he said, but something along the lines of as if he didn't show everybody what he could do enough with the song eruption with an electrified guitar. He decided to come back and go, Oh, by the way, I'm that good. I can do it again. And I'm going to do it here on this acoustic guitar. And he did, he just goes through and rips and everybody that, heard the first album listen to this one and they're like what was that i mean it's just you said it 10 out of 10 another album that they were so well rehearsed and they were so good at what they did that they were able to bang it out in a week that's two albums back to back where they spent next to no time fucking off in the studio pardon my mouth and they just came in and kicked ass and they really, I mean, the the, the next album uh, that we'll be discussing in 1980, Women and Children First, I, I think that was the one where they actually elaborated and, and took a little bit more time, and I think that still was only two weeks. So, I mean, these guys were really just, they were beyond at the top of their game. They were at the top of all games. They were putting out such great material. The the command that they had over their music and over the crowds at their shows, they were just doing things that other bands would sit there from the side of the stage and be like, what are we witnessing? You know? And that's why they are the mighty Van Halen, plain and simple. I mean, you and I, even Walt, we all have that love for him, but I mean, come on, you got to give props where props to do. These guys just literally set the world on fire when they came out. And this was another example of it with this album.
1: Yeah. we could go on all night um we'll save that for another evh uh deep dive so that's the end of the 70s 1979 you know uh the 80s are around the corner things change some of the powerhouses and the biggest bands in the world come around we say goodbye to some of our you know, classic bands. Like we said, Zeppelin's basically dead. Deep Purple is in 50 different kind of incarnations with members and bands. So it's sort of a sad time, but it's an exciting time because the heyday of metal is really ready to start in 1980. So look forward to 1980 with you guys. Have a great week. That's about it for tonight. I want to thank you for listening. We encourage you to send us some feedback on either the MetalMayhemROC.com website or our Facebook page, or we have a new location, PodChaser.com. It's real easy, folks. Go there in the search box. Just punch in Metal Mayhem ROC. We come up. Do us a favor. Rate, review the show, that kind of stuff. It's a new thing we're doing here. That kind of stuff really helps what we're doing here. It builds up our analytics in Google, and it just um, makes the show more accessible to a broader audience. So for my metal brothers, Metal Walt and Ian O'Rourke of the band Motorlord, I'm John the Vernomatic Verno. This is Metal Mayhem ROC, and we'll talk to you next week. Keep it heavy.
0: metal for life thanks for listening to metal mayhem roc check out our websites at metal mayhem and metal for information on upcoming concerts podcasts archives and all sorts of info please like follow and share with everyone even your non-metal friends catch us next time on wlfe tv radio